Today's guest is WSL football royalty. Welcome to In Conversation with a ProPlayer.com, Remy Allen. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I think you're the first person that's ever called me WSL royalty, so I'll take that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. We're going to get into this in a little bit. Like You are, have been and still remain a fan's favourite everywhere you go. And I think in terms of the game, which is where we're coming from in this podcast, is there's certain players that transcend the teams they play for. They're obviously, you're synonymous with two or three different teams, but there's certain players that transcend their team and become almost household names for fans. And especially in the days before we had all this social media coverage that we have now, and there was maybe 12 people chanting and there were songs or whatever it might have been. Um, you know, you're kind of, you're the OG or one of the OGs who started this all off. So absolutely delighted to be in conversation with you here today. Um, got so much to get through. I think one of the major, one of the major things for, for us here with this is to talk to real players about their real experience. And, and obviously, you know, you know, the women's game has changed immeasurably in the last two decades. Having been there from the start, why don't we kick off with that? Like, what do you think have been the most important of those changes? Um, I think the infrastructure is huge. You know, back in the day when it first started, it was very much, if I'm being brutally honest, it was very much like a Sunday league feel. That's just how it was, you know. We'd turn up, we'd train, we'd probably have a drink, we'd go home, like... We were operating <laughs> off very different circumstances. Whereas now, I think, you know, we have tech teams, we have medical departments, we have PP departments, we have so much now to branch out and allow us to be athletes and footballers that we just didn't have back then. And because we now have that, you see the quality of the game, the phys physicality of the game improve, the speed, the technical ability, you know, keeping players on the pitch for longer, they're fitter, stronger, faster, all these things. I think that's been one of the... It still needs to improve, don't get me wrong, because we're nowhere near where we should be or need to be, but there has been a huge development in that, which I think has obviously generally really, really helped the game. And I think across probably the last five, six years or so, the game getting televised has just become huge. It's just changed. You know, I can walk down the street or to into a shops and some people will talk to me about the women's game and it's kind of blown my mind to see it happening. I'm seeing people with shirts on with female names on the back. So I think that obviously the broadcast side of things has been huge, but without all the departments before that, like I said, we wouldn't be at that place to get the game televised. So that's probably been the biggest change for me is the, the stuff behind the scenes to allow us to be better athletes and better footballers. I heard you talk about wanting to maybe be born 10 years later because uh, of everything and the change and everything else. And uh, obviously, when you first started out, I've heard you say that you didn't even know that you could play for England. Uh, you kind of look at those statements now and, and for a young, a young person watching you, watching the Lionesses win the European Championships, playing World Cup finals, how do you reconcile those two statements now in today's world? I mean, genuinely, I'm so happy that as a young girl now, you can be born or grow up I know that there's a women's game. I know that it can be a dream. It can be a job. It can be a financial, you know, you can financially gain from it. Um, I'm so happy that that's just, they'll never know any different. And that's amazing. And that's genuinely how it should be. 
obviously for players like myself, we kind of missed the boat in that in that aspect. But yeah, don't get me wrong, it would be great. Like I said, if I was born 10 years later, I'd probably have another 10 years in this game and be in a lot better place financially, for, for example. Um, but I'm also quite proud to be a part of the generation that's played a small part in helping the game get to where it is. And actually, I'm quite old school myself. And I think there is also uh, cons to being the players now, social media, everything. It's just so different. And you're under scrutiny all the time. So there is parts of the game where I think I really benefited by not having that. But obviously, financially, it would have been amazing to be one of these these new footballers coming through as such. But I'm, I'm proud of the journey that I went on with it, for sure. That's a real pride that I think everybody listening here in the women's soccer community will um, will understand. Because, you know, I came into women's football. I'd avidly watched women's football during the early 2000s when the you know, the FA Cup final was the only thing you could really watch. And it wasn't at Wembley at the time. And you know, it was a Saturday afternoon on BBC or whatever it was. But, um, you know, coming into the game kind of 2013-ish time for me, I was still fully aware of the work that had gone on before even that time, completely in the shadows, to put the women's game where it was. And I, I still feel an element of pride in, like you said there, playing our role in pushing it to where it is today. So I think there's a lot of people listening will resonate with what you've said there. Yeah, definitely. There's there's so many like ex-players, ex-staff, just, you know, even fans that used to come and watch when, like you said, it was 12 people pretty mm. much in a park almost. Like there's so many people that can be so proud of the journey that we've been on as a commu- as a footballing community. And we're in a great place and, you know, we need to kick on more. We shouldn't accept where we are now. We still want better. But yeah, there's been a lot of great change for sure. It's unbelievable. I, I, story just came to mind there. I remember um, mid to, mid mid twenty tens being at uh, Boreham Wood, watching Arsenal play, um, and I think it was Shelley Kerr was the manager of Arsenal at the time. And there was one older gent, a fan, who used to sit stand right behind the dugout there at Boreham Wood, and he's literally behind the dugout because you were inches away. <laughs> yeah. And spent ninety minutes just shouting and just like hammering her, and the class that she like held and the way she conducted herself through that game. I remember sitting in the stands thinking to myself, like this is, I've never really seen this in women's football before. And this is the kind of the first green shoots of where it was going, you know, into, you know, not compare it to the men's game, but people just hadn't done that before. They hadn't, they hadn't, they hadn't supported in that way or, or got after coaches in that way or after players in that way. And the class she showed that day, that will, that will stay with me forever. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, and it's mad, isn't it now that like they're under scrutiny all the time. Yeah. It's evolved yeah. so much, so there's pros and cons for it, for let, sure. Let's kind of start at the beginning, if we can. Um, your, your, your youth days and your, and your England youth career, people might not know how successful your England youth career was. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah, it's something that I'm actually really proud of. And, you know, it's funny, I spoke about this not long ago, that my youth England career absolutely shaped the player in person that I've become. Like, I'm, I'm adamant of it. Um, so, yeah, I actually got selected when I was 13. Uh, so I stayed in the system for a very long... I think I left the system at 23, uh, 24, 25, actually. So a very, very long time. I went all through the age groups. Um, I captained a lot of the sides, so I was really proud of that. Um, I went to three European championships. One of them got knocked out in the group stage. The other one, uh, we lost to Germany in the final. And that was sort of a point where we wasn't in a great place as a nation as such. 
to the point we didn't even bring enough kit with us to go through. And we actually obviously ended up uh, going through into the final and Germany were by far the better side. We lost in extra time, but it was an unbelievable achievement. So I got a silver medal for that. And a year later, we went to the European Championships at under-19s in Belarus and we actually won it. Uh, so I got a gold medal for that, which I was super proud of. Um, unbelievable memories that we still talk about to this day. The, there's a lot of, there's a golden generation of players there. Um, and then I went to a World Cup uh, with the under-20s, got to a quarter-final, got humbled by USA in the quarter-finals, but something, again, that I'll never forget. I was unfortunate I missed the next World Cup because I did my ACL, um, which was, yeah, we didn't do too good in that one. But yeah, I was a part of a lot of major tournaments uh, growing up in the youth system and so many lessons and sort of the way I sort of, I would class myself as quite resilient, quite mentally strong. That is definitely something that was a foundation that was built there. Um, And yeah, I have so many fond memories and so many friends still from the youth age groups. Yeah, and it's just... um, a real proud part of my career that you sometimes forget the youth football, but actually, like I said, it's a real, it was a real shaper for me in the way my career went. So I'm very proud of that. And I'm also very happy that I got to take part in that and be such a key part of it. It's, it's amazing because like the football association, yeah, it's a bit of a cheap shot to say, you know, that they, they weren't prepared for women's football back in the day or they didn't care about it. Yeah, they probably didn't, but it was cultural and it was the way it was. Nowadays, obviously, it's super different. And I, I think they deserve a, a lot of credit for bringing someone like you into the under-23 setup and the work you're doing now. Because those experiences that you've just spoken about, how valuable, how, you know, your authentic self, like just speaking to those players, never mind tactics and X's and O's. If they look in your eyes, they're going to see someone who's walked in their footsteps before they've even done it. That must be so rewarding. I know you've only just started that, but it's great to see you stepping into that world. Yeah, thank you. It's something, I, honestly, I was so buzzing when I got the call um, going to work as a coach for the 23s. It was just, you know, the calibre of players that you're working with, the calibre of staff. I, you know, my first trip was for nine days. I learned so much from the staff. They were absolutely unbelievable. Um, and yeah, just to be, it was a bit surreal, to be honest with you. I, was ter- I turned up and sort of first few days I was trying to assess you know, what the environment was like. And I was thinking, God, it wasn't like this when I was younger because it's a lot more relaxed. Things have changed now. Um, but yeah, it's it's obviously something I'm really passionate about is coaching um, and to do it at such an elite level. Yeah, it was just, it was inspiring. It was brilliant. And I, I actually cannot wait to get back out on camp again. What about the, uh, the coach's life versus the player's life? Those camps are long days. There's lots <laughs> going on. There's not much downtime. How have you, how have you found the transition to that? Yeah, I mean, when players say they're tired, I do start to laugh a little bit now. Um, obviously, it's different, isn't it? It's, you know, it's their long hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of work that goes behind the scenes that I think, you know, players probably aren't aware of and sort of fans and stuff would never have a clue that that's what you were doing. Just the detail and the level of detail of everything. Um, I think I was a, like a sponge. I was just like, give me everything. Like I wanted to learn as much as I can. But safe to say I was getting in bed and I was absolutely exhausted come the night times and all the days just merge into one because yeah. you just keep going, don't you? Um, but no, I absolutely loved it. It was a different kind of tiredness because obviously it wasn't that physical tiredness you have as a player. Um, but yeah, it was incredible. I loved it. The um, You're right. The, the, there'll be a lot of people listening here who have 
you know, being on international camps or being in high performance sport and we'll understand it's not something that's talked about very often, but in terms of, you know, working 12 hour days, 14 hour days and, and going right the way through and having to look after yourself, take care of yourself, sacrifice and be away from the ones, you know, that you love as well and produce your absolute best work. Cause that's what it is. What you're describing there, Remy is brilliant. Like you want to do the best you can possibly do for those players. And, and if it takes an extra minute or 10 minutes or hour, you're going to do it. And, before you know it, it's three in the morning. And like you said, you haven't even slept. So there is definitely a, a part of that when you transition um, to coaching that that is that needs to be thought about. Lit, little and often was some of the um, advice I got once. Touching, you know, with everyone at home, everyone you love, little and often. Uh, yeah, makes don't sense. Don't forget, go four days without talking to everybody. Great stuff. Fantastic. And I think that's a phenomenal appointment by the Football Association. Obviously, the the, the the England team and the England teams at youth level are in a great place. It's a phenomenal time, obviously. You know, disappointing result in the World Cup final, but but not really a disappointment when you look at the actual apex of what that is over the last decade. And uh, I think that's really, really, we're going in a really great direction. So I want to kind of go to that kind of period of your career, you know, sort of 2013 onwards. You know, you've got Birmingham in there, Leicester in there, Villa in there. I remember, you know, watching you week in, week out in that Birmingham team in kind of 2014 to 16 with, um, you know, with Joe and Jade and 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 Kirsty Lynette. I think it was Kirsty, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. People don't remember like the Kirsty had a touch and a way of moving and turning that I would just. It was like a dance. It was unbelievable. You know, and and I I I was surprised that she never really kicked on. Um, you know, into the international setup with the senior team, but she was a phenomenal player during that period nice. as well. I remember, loved watching that Birmingham team, and that's even without mentioning the, you know, the absolute legend that is Kaz Carney as well. The Queen but, of Birmingham. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, you can't not mention Kaz there. Um, but why was that team? Let's get into this. Why was that team so good? Why were you all? You, it, it just looked for the first time like everybody was in the right place doing the right thing and you all functioned so well. Why were you so good? Yeah, I think that it was that particular season and I think we very much had an underdog mentality. We didn't have, we didn't have anything. We had terrible facilities. Really? You know, we were operating off nothing pretty much and we just absorbed all of that and used that as a, as a tool to try and get us through. Um, the pitch was the pitch weren't great. No one liked to come into the moors, which was brilliant for oh, us. So that was our fortress. So we really had that mentality of making it horrible for whoever came. Um, obviously, we had Marcus Bignot. He is a defensive coach. He's one of the mm. best I've worked with. Mm. I will give him that. Um, so we were so structurally organised away from the ball. Um, and we had good players. And I think you we just... My the first game that year happened to be a Champions League quarter final, which was just mental when I think about uh, the structure of the the league. And it was actually my debut. Um, and we went on to win the game, and then we went on to win the replay. And that was before the season even started. So we just, you know, we we'd done that and make got ourselves into a semi final of a Champions League. And I think the confidence then just to kick on in the league, it just kept coming and coming and coming. Um, we had some real resilience because we had to grind out some horrible results at times. Um, but in and amongst that, we had some like Joe Potter, unbelievable on the ball. Oh. Kaz Carney, you know, like you said, Kirsten Lynette. We had loads of players, Keris Harrop, Jade Moore. Like we had such, such good players who could, I think we got sort of put as a team that was a bit horrible and all this, but actually we played and we could mm -hmm. play. 
Um, mm. And teams just seemed to, particularly that year, really, really struggle. I mean, we, we, we fell short in the end. We had, we had a really good opportunity to win the league. Still haunts me to this day, to be fair. Last day of the season, we ended up coming yeah. third. It was third, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I remember. yeah. It just blows my mind. I think the trophy could have gone to three different places. Yeah, we we, we messed up. Um, but yeah, it was a phenomenal year that year in particular, and it was a joy to play with them players. There'll be people listening now who want me to ask. Like that must have been a phenomenal, like mindset inside the dressing room. You know, you, you obviously up against it, the adversity piece. People who came to the club during that period, or signed, or stepped up from the new team, whatever it might have been, how, how did you get them to buy into the same? Because one person coming into that environment might flip that all off. And that sounds like it was your superpower. So how did you get, how did you manage that? Did you manage that as players or was that a coaching thing? Um, I think it was a player-led thing, to be honest with you. It was kind of one of them, like, either come on board, else yeah. you fall away. There was no, there was no, like, you can be an individual or you can sort of do what you want. It was either come with us, stick with us and work really, really hard. I remember training sessions used to be relentless. They were really hard. They were really, they were so like when I say competitive to the point, you know, there'd be times when players would be squaring up to each other and it was just, but we could let it go. It was just the desire to, to win or not lose, almost not lose was the mentality. Um, And I feel like it was just an environment where when players come in, they were just a little bit like, I've got, I've got to join in with this, else I don't become a part of it almost. So it was just like sort of we led it by example and the way we were and other players were at the time. And yeah, players just come on board with it. There was a couple that fell away. Um, it was hard. It was You had to be very mental, mentally resilient. Um, but yeah, it worked for us. I was going to ask you that. Like I don't, don't expect to mention any names, obviously, but there must have been an example of at least some, some person who didn't quite want to make the grade or didn't want to buy in. How, how, like, was that a conversation? Was that a, you know, just, okay, should weed herself out? Or, you know, how did, how does that go? There must've been someone who didn't pull the line. Yeah, I think there was always, there was like in any squad, there's always players that probably don't quite fit what you're trying to do or can't quite grasp how to be, mm. to make that happen. Um, I think a lot of the time as players, like we weren't horrible. You would try yeah. and sort of, help them and guide them and stuff and some of them were youngsters and just didn't quite get it um but yeah you you know you'd put an arm around them or you'd you'd give them you'd give them a bit of a a telling off when they needed it or whatnot and you kind of you kind of get to grips with the players that you know that are gonna eventually get it versus the ones that are not and then you just spend your time sort of progressing with them players and the other ones just sort of drop into a different environment which I think is what naturally happens in a lot of football clubs it's just the way it is I, um, I have philosophy on life. I'm not a very intelligent man, but I have a philosophy on life. There's two types of people in the world, the people who get it and the people who don't. And that sounds a little, um, you know, I'm being a little bit remiss there, but some people do just come in and get it. They, they, they see around them, they feel the situation. They might have a level of emotional intelligence where they, you know, they might not get it just per se because they've walked in the room, but they might feel it. They might, they might say, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And then there's some people that haven't developed those skills and, you know, we've got players listening to us here. We've got fans. We've got aspiring coaches, I'm sure. Do you, do you see that with all the people you've met, people you've worked with, players you've played with? You know, are you like that as well? It, it, do you have to have a heightened sense of emotional intelligence to be able to function in a high-performance environment in this game, do you think? 
Yeah, I think you do. And ultimately, like for me, it's like, so for example, with that blues side, if you're a player wanting to come to blues, you've got to, ha- you've got to understand if you're going to come, you know you're going to have to run for a brick wall. That is an absolute minimal requirement. You know that there's going to be games where it's ugly and it's horrible and you're going to have to bring that physical side to you just to survive in the environment, let alone thrive. Yeah. Um, so if you're a player looking at that, you have to have the brain capacity to go, will I fit mm. or do it? Or am I good enough to bring? Because, for example, Kaz Carney, she has an unbelievable quality that could win his games. So, for example, it used to be a lot. We used to laugh and joke that me and Jade were sort of like, go and do the graft and give it to Kaz and Joe to do the, the nicer sort of parts of the game and not yeah. taking away what they did out of possession and stuff. So mm. you have to either be that good a player that you know you can bring something that the team needs yeah. or you have to fit the f- philosophy of what the team's going to need in and out of possession and off the pitch. Mm. And I think that's the same as a coach. If you're going to go into a side who predominantly has players that really suit a long ball game and you want to be an in-possession coach who builds and plays really pretty football, okay, will it work right now? Do I need to bring in different players to make that happen? Or is my philosophy even going to work in a football club like that? So I do think you have to have some awareness about the situations you're putting yourself in as a player or as a coach. I think as time's gone on, it's it's even easier to kind of see what you're going to walk into because there's a lot more coverage to it now. You get to see what teams are like. You get to see what managers, players are like. So I think, yeah, like, and there's some who will literally just go, I want to sign for this club or I think I can yeah. do this. And the yeah. odd ones might work, but in my experience, the ones who have a little bit more emotional intelligence and awareness tend to be the ones that have longevity in the game. You are so right in what you say there about um, you know the, the the Karen Carneys of this world and and first of all don't take like you said I know I know you're being um, you know you're being humble there but you know yourself and Jade as you mentioned I work with Jade a lot obviously um, in the England team and um, certainly watching you as well you, you what perhaps people don't see is you both had this you probably to a certain more extent they don't see the the craft that comes with the position you play. They don't, that, yes, it's absolutely intimidating for any opposition team to see you on your toes, leaning forward, about to anticipate an interception. And it's that moment, the B of the bang, they used to call it back in the Olympic days when the sprinters used to take off. Nobody understands that better than, than you. And, and, I, and I saw that myself, right? But then the craft when the ball did come to you. The, the amount of times you use the outside of your foot, Remy, when you were playing, people don't, I don't think people give you the credit you deserve for this. That wasn't by accident. And there was people moving off you left, right and centre. There was a 25-yard circle around you, Remy, that you were a master of. The, the, your passing ability, short and medium. Like all this stuff is so much more than the, the tackling and the grit, which you obviously were unbelievable at as well. But that didn't go unnoticed during that time by a lot of people at the top level of the game, even if you didn't know that. God, um, I wish I'd have spoken to you earlier in my career. <laughs> I felt so much better about myself. Uh, no, it, honestly, it, it was that something you practiced? Was that something you went out and did extra after training? Or was it just a play you always were and you just went about your business? Like, How did that happen for you? Um, I think, and it's funny you should say this, sort of like how you perceived. Um, because I know like 
in terms I think if you was to ask most people they'd go oh yeah really mm. good out of possession rats really hard wins the ball back great tackler passes yeah. the ball um, obviously when I was young I was really creative I scored goals blah blah um, and then throughout my early days of my career I fluctuated from being a 4, 8 or 10 mm. um, so it was kind of like doing different things and it was actually I will give a lot of credit to Reading for me, uh, I think they was the well it was the moment it changed for me in terms of I went to Reading and Phil the coach there was an, the best coach I've worked with in terms of technical detail like fine tuning real technical detail even to your last step last touch movements um, and he I, I went there and I started playing he was like stop playing backwards and sideways stop it and at first, I was just like, I'm keeping the ball. I'd always been told to keep the ball. Um, and anyway, we flipped to a diamond and I played on the left side of a diamond. And, you know, I had a season where I finished top goal scorer. I had the season before that where I've, I've chipped in with a lot of goals and assists as well. And he added so much to my game. And like you're saying, like the craft with the outside of the foot and disguised passes, I give... I mean, I had an ability to do it as such, but he really brought that out of me. And that was a real pivotal part of my career. And it was something that flipped in my mindset of, okay, we'll stop in your head labelling yourself as just, you just do the out of possession stuff. Like you're proving that you can do that. And it brought me loads of confidence. It's probably probably the best stage of my career, actually. Isn't it, is it a sad indictment? I don't know. Or is it just, I'm glad that we are here now that, Everybody gets the level that you you obviously operate at now, and I've operated at for years. They all talk about that kind of one coach or that one experience where they were. It isn't as simple as saying they just freed you up. They didn't just tell you go and do what you want. There was an art to it. There was a plan behind it. You've just articulated it really well there in terms of what that coach did for you. And I'm sure you're going to go on and do that post your playing career for other players. But it still seems to be the minority as opposed to the majority. That's not something you would have probably seen in all the clubs you went to after that in your career. There would have been different experiences that you had as a player. Common wisdom would suggest if they'd carried on with that methodology, you'd have gone even closer to your level of potential. For all the young aspiring coaches out there now who are making their way and thinking, well, who should I be? Should I copy what I see on the television and jump around like Pep and, and Klopp? Or should I be, you know, should I be Emma Hayes and be super stoic and have all this wonderful rhetoric and, and control in the media and just be really, really powerful? Like, they don't know who they want to be yet. Where would you see that going if that had carried on in your career, perhaps? Or what advice would you give them for how that coach made you feel? Just think you have to be you. You absolutely have to. If you try and copy someone, it'll never work. Like, I, I just don't believe that you can do that. You have to bring your authentic self. And I just think, you know, for me, I'm like it as a player, and I, I know I'm already like it as a coach. I have to play within a structure. I have to. I've played in teams where it's been, you know, I wouldn't say coaches have been great at giving a structure or a plan as such, and it's very just go play da, 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 and it just does not work for me it's like utter chaos because I'm like I can't you can't control a game because you never know where anyone's going to be in and out of possession you can't control transition um so for me I just think for coaches it's like first of all be you what makes you special is yourself no one else 
Mm. use the like I've done so much I've got so much learning to do but I am constantly trying to learn I watch and analyze so much football all the time since I've got sports code I haven't stopped using it but I'm just like I just think you have to do you have to do the graft you have to do the learning and you have to like nail down some fundamentals that you can bring to the players so for example Phil he didn't really like the out of possession. He didn't really touch on it a lot. We were just an aggressive pressing side. But his what he did love was the sort of the play forward, run forward, the the dropping nines, the stretch run, which I get joked about as being the stretch run for everyone because I do it all the time. And he has a ma- he's a master at them things and finishing in and around the box down to the literal last second and detail of everything. And that's just through repetition and doing it and doing it and doing it so I just think yeah like if I could have had more coaches in my career that had detail and structure I genuinely believe I would have been as a better player than I am I really do and I think that's something now that now the game's more professional and you know a lot more money involved in all this stuff we have to make sure our coaches are the best that they can be because I come in there's so many players and go oh, I've never been coached that mm. and some of it's really basic stuff and I'm like I don't think now there's any excuses as to why we can't be delivering that and I know from an international level what they do and the detail and everything is brilliant we just need to make sure that across the board I'm talking WSL championship tier three now that we're getting proper coaches in who would do the work work on themselves and you know, figure out who they want to be and don't be the copycat version of someone else, but mm. also, you know, actually understand the, sh- the way they want to play a game model. Like there's nothing worse as a player when you know you're playing with someone who hasn't got a game, a game model. You're just literally chopping and changing all the time and it's utter chaos in sessions. And, you know, so I think there's a, there's a real area for the women's game in, in terms of the coaching to keep developing. I, I promised when I, when I, had this idea to do this I promised that I would ask the questions that I felt people would want to hear right and I think and I'm not digging anybody out right but I think there's been coaches in the past who don't have the knowledge or have never gained the knowledge but they found themselves in a position they were in perhaps especially in the women's game um, and maybe um, they just didn't know what to say or do so they avoided it would you say you've seen that yeah for sure like, I just think, let's be honest, in the past 10, 15 years, it's been sort of a bit of a token gesture as a coach or like if someone's falling out the men's game, they instantly yeah. get a job in the women's game. Women's game. Yeah. And that, that drives me insane. And I'll Agreed. preach about this till the day I die. If you haven't worked in the women's game, you shouldn't be taking an elite job in the women's game because yeah. it is so different. So, so different. And I'm like, the game needs to be given the respect that it deserves. And that means doing the due diligence with who you bring in as staff. I think mm-hmm. it's so, so... Because it makes and breaks the season. It makes and breaks teams. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you I've been in periods where it's utter chaos because we just don't know what we're working off and you lose so much time. So my hope is now that, you know, it's not a token gesture. Everyone wants jobs now. There's, yeah. there's people coming from the men's game thinking yeah. that they can... This is this is an area to go and get jobs now, and you know, in yeah. a way, that's great that they see that as a as a chance now. But we do need to make sure that we keep upskilling the upskilling coaches and bringing the best version of coaches that we can for the development of the women's game. 
and the development of English women's football as well. Absolutely. We, we cannot let this generation of player who's been there right from the start, who's lived the change in women's football to now, we cannot let them fall out of the game now. We, we cannot. And, and you've obviously done your UEFA licence and gone and done your coaching badges and, your, and your, your, you're quite a long way along that thing. But I hope there's other players listening and, and you know, governing bodies listening, especially the Football Association, who will do something about retaining this level of quality and experience and providing a bridge for those players that want to go and learn what it is to be a coach. Because, yes, you can have an idea on the game, but you know yourself, actually putting sessions on you know, thinking about periodization, working in a high-performance team. These are things that you don't necessarily know as a player, especially if you're in an environment that, like you said, didn't height, you know, didn't value those things or you had a coach who particularly didn't even know those things. So I hope, yeah. I hope that's the way it's going to go. And I will say, like, I do think there is definitely from, like, the FA and the PFA, it's something that they're starting to think about a lot more and putting mm. things in, pro in, in a process, which is great. And it just needs to, we just need to keep pushing that. I mean, I'm really fortunate. My partner's a manager and, a, mm. and been a coach throughout the mm. game. So I've, I've honestly feel like I've had a lesson in, in coaching and management. In the last cool. yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Honestly, I've got <laughs> home when it's like, but it's great for me because I've yeah. learned so much from her, like so much, like all the, you know, at one point she was doing op opposition analysis stuff for a team. So I'd sit with her, we'd go through it together. I, honestly, really I've learned. I almost feel like I've had so much more than an average player would have had at my age, yeah. just yeah. because of them experiences. And I'm like, I, I'm like, have you got any stuff for me to do? Like, I'm honestly a bit of a keynote with it because I'm like, I'm only yeah. going to get better by yeah. sort of sort of doing this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's something that I'm hugely passionate about, and I know there's other uh, female players as well that want to progress. So. There's starting to be pathways put in place. I think we need to be pushing it more. And, you know, I, I don't believe, I'm not one of them that goes, we should absolutely give a woman a job over a man. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But I do think there's there's been a gap between, you know, if we've got a male who's been in the game, we'll give them the job. Whereas if we've got a female, we, we might necessarily not. And yeah. I hope that keeps developing and I hope that starts to change no, I'm buzzing for uh, Mel at, Bright at Brighton. Mm -hmm. I think it's brilliant that she got the opportunity and she's, she seems like she's doing great and I know the players love her. So for people yeah. like that, it's just been brilliant. We just need to keep pushing that. We, we need more stories like that. And, and look, for me, having lived in the US for the last 10 years, it's a really interesting dynamic because that's not necessarily the case here. You know, female coaches are, you know, I don't want to say on a level, like I don't want to be that guy mm. who decides what everything is, right? But it's not unusual for a female coach to build dynasties and be an iconic figure of a sport here, especially soccer, but other sports as well. And it's just a much more refreshing way of looking at, it's a bit of a lazy thing, I think, in 2023 to say, you know, just get a job because you're a female, because you're a male. Like there's more to it now. Yeah. But here in the States, the right person is getting the right job. And if that's male or female, it just doesn't matter. I mean, they just want to win and, and they just want to do well. And, they, you know, we've obviously had a lot of talk in the last few years about the changes in the league and how the necessary changes in the culture needed to change here in the NWSL. And that has to change and is changing. But um, I find it much more refreshing here in the States now. And it sounds like it's going that way back in the UK as well, is, is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, for sure. I'd agree. It's taken its time. It's a it's a process, but we're getting there. I just hope we keep pushing it. 
let's get into this if you don't mind. So for the young coaches listening, what do coaches do? That what's the biggest mistake they make? So the, the coaches you go, oh, you're looking out the corner of your eye and going, oh no, here we go. Like what what is going on during that time? What can aspiring coaches learn from you today that they should never do? Like, let's get into that. Um, I think one is being prepared. Yeah. Like players will know when you're blagging it. And you might be able to put on a great session and with no real thought process. But if it doesn't link back to a game plan or it doesn't then make sense for future sessions, if, if you're a walking contradiction with messages and stuff, yeah. players, players read you like a book and will just not buy into you. So I think it's about, you know, looking at the way you want to play or your game model, whatever you want to call it. And then how do you design your sessions that work off that, that are always going to link and then you can tweak things slightly for your tactics on a game day versus who you're playing. But having a structure to come back to is vitally important because, you know, I've sat in dressing rooms where everyone just goes, well, what on earth are we doing? Because one minute we're saying this, the next minute we're saying that. We were doing that last week. We're completely different this week. And I think it's, you know, it causes chaos. And over a season, that it just grinds you down. It grinds players down. And they then they don't back you and they don't trust you. So, yeah, organisation, planning, structure are hugely important things. And sometimes I think it's like, because players always want answers. So you'll do something in training and, like, as a player, you'll be like, yeah, but why? Why this? Or well, what if they do that? I think sometimes there's an art in just going, let me, if you've got, if you're if you uh, videoing the game for it or the training session, just being able to go, do you know what? Let me just watch it back because mm. I'm not sure. Because I've worked with a lot of coaches that will go, well, yeah, you should just do this, this, and this. And then there's chaos on the pitch. Yeah, and they they don't know. They're just, it's a reaction because they can't see everything. Do you know what I mean? And as players, you expect all the answers all the time. So I think there's an art in just saying, let me just have a look at it and I'll get back to you. We'll we'll do it in the classroom or I'll catch you afterwards. We'll go through the clip. I found that very important. Um, You know, it happened to me when I was on camp at the 23s. A player asked me something and I didn't see it because it's 11 me 11 and I'm looking at something else. And I went, and I obviously I've worked with coaches before and I've seen them do it versus not. And I just went, yeah. I'll tell you what, let me just have a look at the video when I get back in and I'll grab you. And I did. And I just thought, I don't want to give her the wrong messages because yeah. then it just confuses the player. So that was a valuable thing for me that I'd learn. Um, and then the final thing is sometimes I think there's an art in just shutting up. When you're on the pitch training, you don't have to be commentating through everything like it's, there's nothing worse as players when you just like give us the information give us the detail and let us play and then yeah. when you when it's right to step in step in or you know in your breaks give you information because it just becomes white noise and as a coach you really think you're you know you're getting loads of messages across and the players are like no, i can guarantee you they're not listening or yeah. they've heard the first sentence and they're like come on now just let me play yeah so there's an art in just the timings to speak. And then also just generally with your players, like players want to play. That's all they're bothered about. So when it comes to, you know, you've got to do selections and all this stuff. If you start feeding players rubbish, yeah. they talk. Players yeah. always talk. So there's no hiding. And then when you start feeding them rubbish, they're sat in the change rooms talking about it. So they lose respect for you. So you, there's an art in not having to tell them everything you don't have to tell them every single reason or there's an art in just being honest it goes a long way with players 
um, which I think I know it's difficult, and you know you always want to. You know, is it is it that difficult though? Like, well, on, yeah, it's difficult to sit across the room from someone and tell them some difficult feedback. But you know, I don't know. You'd have to ask the players who played, you know, for me and with me and a coach. But I don't know that if you, like you said, if one, if you're prepared, if you have the video as we invariably do these days, right, and if you have thought about things. I think there is a way you can give a message across and say, listen, look, this is how I'm seeing it. And ultimately, like, I think players really want that feedback, even if yeah. it's tough. Like, are we really saying that the top managers and coaches just don't want to be in an awkward situation with a player face-to-face? That's. A I mean, really I'm not, listen, bar. I'm not saying all, I'm not saying all. No, no, I know not all, what, yeah, yeah. What yeah. I think is, you know, I actually got asked as a senior player, I was in the office with, I won't say which club at one point. Yeah. And they said to me, like, Rem, we've we've given this player, a younger player, you know, reasons as to why she's not playing and she just can't get her head around it, blah, blah. And I just said, okay, we'll just back it up with some footage. Yeah. I said, because you cannot get away from that as a player. You're not playing because of X, Y said, I don't know, you, you, your deliveries, you're a wide player, your delivery, you don't hit the right areas, blah, blah. Here's five clips from games or training recently, what you're doing, what I need you to do differently and what I need you to be consistent with. Once you become consistent at that, then we can talk about minutes or you can start to challenge whoever's playing in your place. Then if if a player's got something to go off, at least they can go away and think, okay, well, I've got two, two decisions to make. I just sulk because I'm not playing. I carry on doing what I'm doing. Or I look at my crosses, for example, and I start to really nail that down in training sessions and work on it and do extras. So, like, I think linking it with some form of, like, whether it's data or footage or something like that can really help both coach and player get get through the situation with honesty. I, th- I think you're so right. I, I remember, it comes to mind there, I remember going into the England setup and Alex, Alex Greenwood, um, another, another amazing footballer, obviously, was just kind of coming through the 23s and making a way into the England team at the time. And... There's nothing in the world I'm going to teach Alex Greenwood about striking a ball. She's one of the best <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, and sitting down with Alex and talking about like, listen, these these are maybe the seven, eight seconds before you get the ball and the, the movements you might make to get more opportunities to cross. And it's just about providing some relevance rather than just saying the obvious things that yeah. you know, she knows full well how to cross a ball. She knows how to put the spin on it, the bend, the whip, the pace. She probably already knows how to seek out who she's looking for. It really was about just building a game plan around those crosses and where people will arrive and everything you've mm-hmm. kind of said there. And I feel like in those moments, players actually turn around and go, okay, I'm having this. Like, let's go. Like, what, yeah. what else me? What more I do you want? I promise you, the best players will look at it and go, all right, you're giving me something to work at. I'll yeah. go and do it. And you yeah. have an, a, a mentality of, right, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. Like you don't always have to agree with the decision, but you can respect it with the honesty and some something to back it up. And then as a player, you go away, and then you have to you have to go and do the graft. That's a part of the game. And as well, like it's not always about negative things, is it? We know this better than we've ever known before. Like one of the best phrases I ever heard was "catch and being good." Like when when you see a player doing something absolutely brilliant, why don't we highlight that? Why don't we? You know, why don't we stop sessions and talk about that? Why don't we put that in a meeting at the end of the at the end of the day? It's, it can't always be, and I think this is changing. I think we're better at this mm-hmm. now as an industry, but it can't always be about look, you didn't do this or you lost your player at the back post. 
like come on like we've moved on haven't we there's an art of blending it isn't there so like yeah. if you're doing analysis and you're doing feedback there's always going to be good parts or even better if parts yeah. and it's how you articulate that and you can you know you can blend the both in so it doesn't feel like the players are going to sit there and take a hammering or anything like that they're actually mm. going to go okay here was some really good stuff let's see here this is this is an even better if and these are what this is what I'm looking for so there's you, if you do your analysis right, I, you know, I think analysis is unbelievable. I will use it always. It will be a key part of me if I'm a manager one day and, and definitely as a coach. Um, I think there's a real good way of using it to help players a lot more than we probably even do right now. We can't live without it now, can we? Yeah, every no. coach manager has to be an expert at this. And I think the power in you delivering the message and you even using the computer and pushing the buttons and showing the graphics as well is, yes, we have great people in the high performance team that can actually, you know, put, put things on the screen and, and maybe draw things and that, but the power in you delivering that message, especially someone like you who's been there and done it, there's no underestimating that for the next generation of players, I don't think. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about um, adversity and overcoming adversity. And, I really want to get into the space of, from a player's mindset, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this today who are aspiring to do what you've done on the pitch, aspiring to do what you've, what you've done and are doing in the technical area. Um, and there's no guarantees. You know, Maybe as a player, there's a contract. Maybe there's some level of stability. But even that, as a time lapse, you, know, you haven't got a contract forever. But certainly as a coach, very difficult. There'll be a lot of people out there listening right now who are, you know, miles away from where they want to be and don't see a route to that. And maybe they're feeling a little lost or a little alone or a little, their dream might be too far away from them. Um, how Have you ever felt that way? And uh, how have you dealt with those feelings? Because obviously you've overcome everything there is to overcome to have the career you've had. How did you deal with that? I mean, I've, I've got, I guess I've got two examples, one as a player and one as a coach. I can give you both. Um yeah in terms of a player, is actually really recent. Obviously, I did my ACL uh, not long ago um, at the back end of my first, uh, second, sorry, second season with Villa. Um, and I had one year left on my contract and I rehabbed. It took me 13 months. It was the hardest 13 months of my career. And I didn't know about a contract. And I got to the end, of, near the end of the season and I wasn't given a new contract. Wow. And I honestly felt horrendous the whole way through the process because I just had this niggling feeling I wasn't going to get one. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted one, I'll be honest. I was at the point in my career where I was like, I don't know whether I should retire. I don't know whether I need to move on. I, I was just in a bit of a loss with everything. Um, and when I actually got given the information, even though I kind of seen it coming because there was like, there was, the conversations had broke down or there wasn't I wasn't getting any clarity with stuff. I could kind of preempt that it was going to happen. But when I actually heard the words, the first time ever as a footballer, really, that I've been rejected for such, first time I'd never got a contract, put it that way. Mm. Um, oh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt like a failure. I felt like, you know, I'm not respected. I'm not appreciated. I don't know what I'm going to do. No one's going to want me. I'm too old. I need to quit, like a million, a million, million emotions going on in my head. Obviously took some time over the summer, got away, like tried to 
tried to sort of just reset myself and I, you know I, I just got to a point where I was like well it's the same as what you always have to do Rem. you just have to crack on and you go and speak to other clubs and I was like do you know what I am going to give it a go I, I I'd worked really hard in 13 months to get back I played the back end of this the last three games I finished the last game captain in Villa we won against Arsenal I played 90 minutes I couldn't have ended it any better in terms of the the injury and not getting a contract like I'd I felt like it was a bit of like a screw you almost moment because I had a, it was, I actually had a good game. I was I was sort of proud of myself. So when I went away, I just thought you've got more to give. Like you owe it to yourself to at least do next season because why rehab for thirteen months to not come back? Um, and I just got back into the mental resilience that I've always had because it's been programmed into me from since I was a kid at England. And I was just like, you just have to fight. Like you would every single day on the pitch, you now got to do it again. And yeah, it was a bit of a, it dented my ego because as a footballer, you build a reputation and you hope that you're going to be respected for that. And sometimes you are, and you know what? It's just life. Sometimes you're not. Um, so yeah, I just had to pick myself up and I thought, you know what? Grit your teeth, get on the pitch, train really bloody hard and get yourself a contract somewhere else, mm. um, which obviously I did. Um, and then, yeah, I guess as a coach, it's something that, you know, all them feelings that you were describing that other people might be going through, I think it's really natural. I sit in that place a lot of the time because I'm like, I'm coming towards the end of playing. I'm obviously working with the 23s now, looking for other opportunities to coach as well. And I'm a bit like, well, am I going to get work? Am I going to be wanted? You know, everyone wants experience. Yes, I have a lot of experience as a player but not necessarily at the top level as a coach yet. So is anyone going to want that? But what I choose to believe is that if I keep upskilling myself and doing everything within my power to make myself ready for when or if an opportunity becomes available, I'm ready for it. And I can't control what other people are going to think or what other people are going to presume they know about me or whether I'm a good coach, bad coach or, you know, whatever. But what I can do is control what I do. And I think that's just the the mindset that you have to put yourself in in this industry because you can get lost in other people's perceptions and, you know, they might have heard you in a session, it was terrible, oh, well, you're a terrible coach. Like, they, do you know what I mean? So I think yeah. it's almost like you get taught it as a footballer, control the controllables. Yeah. Um, and that's the mindset that, listen, don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect and I slip out of this at times and, you know, need a little bit of reassurance, which will come from a partner or whatever. But majority of the time, that's the place that I try and sit myself in to be in an industry where it's unpredictable. There's no guarantees. I don't think there's any better advice you could give um, someone sitting in that space right now. I, 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 and I, for me, you know, the world of the world we live in now, the world of the world of football, the world of social media, the world of Instagram, everybody's putting everything out there that's perfect and nobody ever sees. This is a conversation that's being had. But I want to share that as well because I want people to feel comfortable in what you've just said and, and to embrace the fact that they might not be where they want to be. I remember back in 2016, early 2016, leaving the England team. I'd moved to the United States. The family was here. We're building a brand new life here in the States. I'm flying back every two months to be with England. And it was great. It was phenomenal. Um, you know, professionally, it was the highest ever. We'd just come off the back of, obviously, the 2015 World Cup won a medal, everything like that. But, you know, eight months later, I'm living in the United States. My family needs something different. I have a choice to make. You know, we can't move back to the to the UK. We've got to go on this journey together. And I wanted to do that. And and I ended up um, leaving the England setup to 
the day we qualified for Euro 2017, we beat Serbia back in the airport. It was my my last day. And I never even really got to say goodbye to the team. It was kind of just, this is the right moment. You know, I've done my bit. I've been there two and a half years. I need to go on and, and, and do something else. The next game I coached was in Burns Park in Little Rock, <laughs> Arkansas, for um, Arkansas Rush under 14s, you know, and, and we lost 15-0. And that was the next <laughs> game I coached. And, and during those times, it was quite hard. It was dark yeah. at times. It was really difficult to get your head around the fact that you were doing this, now doing that. And in my whole career, there's been ups, downs, lefts, rights. But I want to share that because people might think that's not the way for successful people or people like yourself. And you've just reiterated it there. Like, if you're going to go into this business, if you're going to be successful in this business, get ready for when that's coming because how you deal with that is probably how you bounce back and, and continue and be successful in the longer run. That's not something you're going to get taught in a book or on a course, is it? No, for sure. And I think, like, ultimately, let's be honest, football is literally down to opinions. Mm. So the person who hires and fires you, mm. it's down to his preference or her preference. Mm. You know, you you might be creating something amazing but not getting results right now and that might not be enough for that person doesn't mean you're a bad coach or a bad manager and I think it, listen it's so hard and ask me when I've potentially hopefully been in management and you know hopefully there's not that many seconds but potentially there could be it is really hard to not take it personal and yeah. get emotional with it and it's something I know that I will definitely have to be aware of and have someone that will sort of just guide me and keep me in check with that stuff because it's easy to lose sight of reality almost because it's such a weird bubble football when you're in it like you can't explain it and it's yeah it's it's a cutthroat industry and it's something that you know you you have to sort of be prepared for because you can't it's not nice at times like there's probably a lot a lot more stress than there is almost I'm not selling this very well at all but <laughs> we're, not, we're not gonna get anyone going <laughs> listen my partner is stressed probably 70% of the time versus oh, the 30% okay. She won yeah. at the weekend and still weren't happy. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> this is the reality sort of thing. But yeah, it's just a part of the game. And it's, you know, that's not going to change. If anything, it, the, the pressures will just get bigger and bigger. They will. They will. I think, um, I think what, yeah, what we're trying to do here with this is to just give people an insight into. I've put everyone going, off. Yeah, no, not really. I bet there's people <laughs> listening going, yeah, I, I walk in those shoes. I totally understand. Even when I'm, I, I do like the rhetoric I'm hearing now, mine, from some of them. Um, ex-players in the men's game where they're kind of they're turning to punditry and they're starting to say things like yeah I lost the game I wouldn't speak to my family for a week and they kind of realise how ridiculous that is or can be and not to take anything away from anyone's process everyone should do what they need to do to get by right but life is short time is precious as we started saying and you know I, I hope we're going somewhere different a little bit so people can give themselves a little bit of a break Um the, the adversity piece is massive because you're right. There's more adversity and, than success for sure. There's more picking yourself back up off the ground than there is stepping onto the podium. How about how about belonging? I, I feel like in the women's game right now, and I've done a lot of work in the last kind of seven or eight years in the women's youth game and college soccer here in the States, belonging is something that's come to the fore in terms of being a much more important concept and trait. And that could be, you know, feeling like you fit into the team or feeling like you you know, belong in a particular club or a particular place, like you said earlier, but is this a thing? Is this something that we should, as as top-level coaches and, and, and players, be thinking about in terms of where people are? Do they feel like they belong? Are we ever going to get the best out of people if they don't feel like they belong? Yeah, I think, listen, the best example I can give you for myself 
was doing my knee, doing my ACL. I went from being the captain of Villa to playing every minute, being a key part of what we were doing, to being sidelined for 13 months, bigger, better players coming in the building and not getting a contract. And in that period of even coming back, you know, you, you sort of, you're doing your graft every single day in the gym and it's lonely and, you know, it's just, just the process of obviously doing an ACL. But I'd go to games and I'd sit there and be like, I'm wearing the badge, but I don't feel a part of this. Mm. And it's not necessarily that situation, I think, is just a natural thing that happens with injuries, especially long-term ones. And it's, it is really hard from a club point of view, I think, and the staff and whatnot, how you can keep that player involved as such. It's really difficult, like, balance to try and find. But, yeah, like, the they're not feeling like you belong in that period for me was you just feel like an imposter sat in the kit almost like it was such a strange, strange feeling. And I don't think until you, till you have moments like that, you realize how special team sport is. Mm. 